it's very true that we all love life. We love life. We, we long for life as human beings. That's just a, a part of what it means to be human is longing for life and loving life. And that's one of the reasons that everybody loves Easter. Easter is a, a day of life. It's a day that we celebrate new life um, and, uh, and obviously the, the, the new life that we have in Jesus. Um, so that's why we've got the, the, the Easter eggs, these popular signs of life, and, and that's why um, lots of people wear flowers and we look at, at pretty things because it's a day of life, and so it's a day that we love. But the key question is for us, um, where are you going to find life? Where, where are you going to find life? There are lots of different answers to that question, lots of different places that we turn to look for life. A lot of times we, we think that life will be the kind of consummation of a, of a life lived really hard, of a life of great effort and striving and struggling after whatever goal it is that we've set for ourselves or after the attainment of that goal, when we finally arrive at some place. Or it's, it's the culmination of um, just our hard work in whatever it is that we've, that's been set before. So maybe we think that life is going to come as the result of some experience, um, you know, maybe it's a goal that you've set of climbing Mount Everest. And one day when you get there and stand on the summit, life's going to come to you in a way that you had never known it before or fill in the blank for whatever it is that your goal might be. Or perhaps it's through an identification with a cause. Um, many of us take up a cause with great energy and enthusiasm, thinking that by our identification with this cause, good as it may be, that we're going to find life in the way that we've been looking for. And it, it's true in many ways that we do find life in some of these pursuits. I don't mean to say that we don't. But the reality is, and that most of us could attest to, is that as we pursue life in these ways, we find it in some ways elusive, not entirely fulfilling, not really scratching where we were itching. And so we move on. Uh, I probably shouldn't quote from Tom Brady on the opening home day of the Red Sox, um, but, but it's the best I can do. In an interview that, that um, Tom Brady, the, the, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, did with 60 Minutes, Stephen Croft, back in 2005, he says this at the end of the interview. He says, why do I have three Super, Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Croft then asks him back in the clip, what's the answer? To which Brady responds, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And so many of us perhaps haven't reached the, the heights in terms of this world's uh, prizes that Tom Brady has, but so many of us have that same experience, don't we, of pursuing life in these other ways and finding that there's got to be more than this and maybe scratching our heads to say, well, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What's ironic is that despite the testimony of people like Tom Brady and people um, uh, who, who fill those same shoes and our cultural kind of icons and, and, and idols, that this doesn't actually bring life most of us still spend our, much of our lives tirelessly pursuing these same things to get what other people who've gotten them tell us they don't actually give. And we end up kind of like this hamster in a wheel, just 
rolling and rolling around, thinking that the next time we step up, it's not going to give way and go down. And often in this way of life, we tend to use Easter as a kind of holiday of optimism. It's, it's a holiday that, that sort of celebrates life in its vaguest kind of generalities. And in many ways, just re-infuses us with energy for the futile pursuits that we go on about in our lives day in and day out. Easter just kind of gives us that boost, ironically, because Easter actually isn't about that, but it just kind of gives us that boost that we need to go from year to year to year pursuing this way of life. To celebrate good things, which I agree are good, family, creation, the beauty of a day like this, is, it's, it's impossible to argue that this is not good and relationships and the things that we treasure as human beings, but to pursue them without ultimately turning to the one who is ultimately the only source of life, to pursue them in many ways on our own. Many of us function, just practically speaking with God, either rejecting him and saying, God, I don't need you for life. I'm going to go pursue it on my own or by just enlisting God in our own pursuits and agendas and saying, God, come bless my plans. Come bless my ambitions so that I can have life on my terms in the way that I long for it. In other words, God, I don't really need you. I just want you to come and kind of fill the void that I feel. In some ways, I need you to come and put a little wind in my sails so that I can go out and get life on my own terms. And if we live this way, if this is the way that we live, if this is the way that we pursue life, the thing that we're all longing for, then ultimately we miss it. Again, we find it like that elusive thing that we cannot grasp and it slips in and out of our hands again and again and again. This is not the way of the resurrection. This is not the way that we proclaim on Easter, the way of life. Let me ask you this, on what canvas is the resurrected life of Jesus painted? What canvas is, is, is this beautiful, wonderful, supernatural event painted for us? It's not one where there are glimmers of hope. It's not one where we think that we've got something to bring to the table to bring about life in some ways, this thing that we long for and pursue. But the canvas of Easter, of the Easter morning, is a canvas of utter hopelessness, of life that's not working the way that we thought it was going to work, of despair, of depression, of heartache. This is the, this is the context within which we find this resurrecting work of God to take place. It's not the context of, I think I can do it, the little engine who thought he could, just needing a little extra boost, but it's the engine kind of falling off the tracks, buried on the side of the road. No hope. And it's in that context of, of a lack of hope that the wonderful, powerful, surprising, unanticipated, life-filling life work of God takes place. See, it's in, in, in Luke 24 where the women are getting up on Easter morning. They don't know it's Easter, obviously. It's just the first day of another week. But it's not just another week. It's a, it's a week of, of despair. It's a week of, of mourning. It's a week of shattered dreams and unfulfilled hopes. 
deep hopes, hopes that they thought everything would change by. And they get up in the morning early before dawn and they bring spices and they head to the tomb. Living life in the horizon of what they know to be true, what they think they can expect. And they go to uh, prepare Jesus' body with these spices so that it can decay and rot and end up being bones that they'll then put in an ossuary and store it somewhere else. That's the context. It's the context of the disciples, shattered dreams, shattered hopes, having pinned all of their hopes upon this one called Jesus, only to find that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, that in the end, Jesus wasn't really the Lord that they thought he was. Jesus wasn't really the king that they thought he was, that Rome and Caesar still ruled the day, that the, world, the worldly earthly powers still had prevailed over the God that they were serving. That's the context in which Easter takes place. It's not unlike the context of Exodus 14 that we read from, of the Israelites getting out of Egypt, standing at the kind of cornered at the Red Sea, with literally nowhere to turn, and Pharaoh and his army rushing on them at great speed, with a cloud of dust in the desert um, coming, coming toward them. And saying to Moses, Moses, why didn't we just stay in Egypt and die there? It's not unlike the context of Abram and Sarai having this promise from God for a baby, a promised child through whom all of the earth would be blessed, but finding themselves actually in their own bodies in terms of their capacity to reproduce and have a child literally dead with nowhere to turn. There's no escape hatch. There's no hope left for them for the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea, for Abram and Sarai in this hope for a promised child. There's nowhere to turn. There's no human exit. And so this is the context in which we find God at work. And let me just say to you right now that if you're um, here and you're feeling trapped and you're feeling like you're kind of at the end of your rope and you're feeling like maybe there's something that's got a hold of your life, Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a relationship with your parents. Maybe it's uh, an, uh, an unkind and uncharitable boss. Maybe it's uh, a sickness, a health issue. Maybe, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just an unfulfilled dream. If you're here and you're in that place of lacking any hope, of feeling just kind of clamped down and not knowing where to turn, then the story of Easter is that you're not in a place of utter despair. You're in the only place the one place where God can do his mighty work, where God can bring life from death, where God can restore and make new. So what does God do in this situation of hopelessness? What does God do in this world of unfulfilled dreams and shattered expectations? In, onto that canvas, out of that soil of impossibility, new life begins to grow. God does something that only God can do. And God brings life into the midst of this hopeless place. The God of life, the God who is mighty to save, shows up and does a work that only he can do. Eugene Peterson says this, the Christian life begins as a community that is gathered at the place of impossibility, the tomb. The Christian life begins as a community that is gathered at the place of impossibility, 
the tomb. At this place of impossibility, God comes to the rescue of Moses and the Egyptians standing at the Red Sea and tells Moses what to do. Hold up your staff. And God creates a way. In Abram and Sarai's hopelessness, longing for a child, a promise that God had given to them, God and only God brings new life through their bodies, which were as good as dead. And in the shattered despair of that first Easter morning, it's God, by his great power, who raises his son Jesus from the dead, out of the tomb, death not able to have its hold upon him any longer. Out of death, God brings life. From cover to cover, this is what Christianity is about. This is what we as Christians believe more than anything else is that our God is a God of recreation, a God of resurrection, a God who's bringing life where there was once death, a God who's bringing hope where there was once despair, a God who's bringing joy where there was once sadness. This is what we believe. Nothing else is the central thing. This is it. And this is the central day of that central truth that God is a resurrecting, life-giving God, a God who meets us in our places of deepest need. And this life that God gives is never something that we earn. It's never the culmination of our um, meager efforts. And that's the situation of hopelessness. It's always a surprise. It's always unearned. It's always unanticipated. It's always given as an act of grace from above. Life comes out of death. Life comes one way. It's not two ways, both of us having a hand in it. It's one way. It's God doing what only God can do to bring life into his people. We didn't prepare for it. We didn't foresee it. We didn't Uh, manufacture it in any way. The women were surprised when they arrived at the tomb, the stone was rolled away. When they go in to look and see the body, the body was gone. The tomb was empty. The disciples, when they hear the women's tale, say, this is an idle tale, and they don't believe it. And Peter gets up and runs to the tomb to go in and see for himself the cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus' body lying now in the tomb without a body. They were surprised and shocked. They were marveling. They were in awe at a work that only God could do. And, and God, God has these angels there in the tomb to say to the, to the women what really happened. Why do you look for the dead among the living? Why do you look for the dead among the living? He is not here, but has risen. In John's Gospel, Mary thinks that maybe the gardener or somebody else took Jesus' body and moved it away. God provides this divine testimony and witness to say, no, he isn't here anymore. He's not dead anymore. Death couldn't hold him. He is risen. He's alive. Life into death. Joy into despair. This is the work that God is doing. God resurrected Jesus bodily. It's not that he was a ghost, and that's why in some of the accounts of these stories in the Gospels, we have Jesus eating broiled fish, having people touch his body to say, no, I'm not a ghost. It's not a metaphorical thing, as many pundits have tried to say about the resurrection that Christians proclaim, that that this was a metaphor for an experience that his followers had after his death of of Jesus' presence in some powerful way. That doesn't explain the empty tomb the lack of a body, and it doesn't explain 
the encounters with the risen Christ that many had after his resurrection. They had language that they could have used for these kinds of encounters with a spirit from another world or for some kind of spiritual heartwarming experience. But to speak of resurrection in the first century context was to speak of nothing other than a bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus having died and been raised physically in history, in the world that we live in, in the time that we inhabit. Jesus raised, walking, alive and new on earth, in our world, and in our face. Something that's not constrained to the private sphere of, of neat and tidy spirituality, but something that literally breaks into Rome's empire and breaks into our little worlds and says, be confronted with this reality that God has done a great thing. God has raised his son from the dead. So what does this mean? What does it mean that, that God raised up his son Jesus in a physical, tangible, bodily way to walk upon this earth in a way that was continuous with his body that had lived before, but discontinuous as well in that he was able to appear at will and walk through walls. There was something unique and special about this. What does all this mean? Well, it means, first of all, that in the world, the new creation has begun. Something new is, is on the move. Something that we are longing for as human beings in the world today. Not just that this was a resuscitation of an old body, but that there was something new that has been made. And there is a new thing on the move in the world in which we have a part. A new creation has begun. John in his gospel does it beautifully in this way. There are seven miracles in John's gospel. Seven signs. Seven signs that point to who Jesus really is. And at the end of the seven signs, there are no more signs. Until the resurrection of Jesus, the eighth sign, the beginning of the new week, the beginning of the new world. So that's one thing that it means. It means that the world that we see here, which is good but flawed and fallen, is not the world that will one day be, but that there's a new world coming. That's what it tells us about the world. What does it tell us about, about Jesus? It says that Jesus wasn't actually the failed Messiah that the Romans thought that he was when he went to the cross, but instead that Jesus is the world's true king and true Lord, and that he's my Lord, and that he has a claim to be your Lord as well. He has a claim, a rightful claim, to be over you and ruling you. And he's not just a Lord from back then, but because he was raised, he's a living, present, alive Lord who's doing his life-giving work in and through his people today. Jesus is Lord. He's not a failure. The kingdom, life-giving kingdom work, the life-giving mission of Jesus continues today through his resurrected power. One of the best examples of this, and I'm sure that there are many people here in this room who could give a testimony of how Jesus has literally turned your life upside down. But I want to give you one just from my own life personally that has meant more to me than, than anything that I've experienced in my life, and it's going on right now. And that is in the life of my brother. My brother is a year and a half older than me, and for 20 years, of the last 20 years of his life, he's not been sober for longer than 30 days. Um, he was grabbed by, by drugs and alcohol and found that that hold on him was strangling him. And I'm sure some of you might know a person like this or perhaps have been in this same stranglehold in your own life. But about two months ago, my brother hit that place that is affectionately known in that world as rock bottom. And only by the grace of God 
did he get to that place. And through a providential series of events, he, he moved out to North Carolina to be a part of a recovery program, a Christian recovery program. And in that place, he met the risen Christ. And my brother who was dead is now alive. Um, I just spent four hours with him last Saturday. I was down there for a conference and I got to spend four hours with him. And I saw a life in my brother that I've never seen before. I saw a, 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 lighted, a lightheartedness in him that I had never seen before. I saw literally a man who had been transformed, who was made alive by the risen Christ. And he's one of many examples of those who have encountered this Jesus that we proclaim, the one that we say rose from the tomb and who are literally being transformed. Every one of you here, if Jesus is your Lord, has that story in one, one shape or another of Jesus making you new. So it says that Jesus is the world's true Lord. And that he's longing to work that life in your life today, now. And it says finally that God has the last word. This is one of the wonderful joys of Easter. That the grave doesn't have the last word. But that God and with God hope and joy and peace and life and justice and mercy have the last word. They have the final say over cancer, over death, over tragedy, over heartache, over pain in marriage, over pain in your families, over pain in your life, over addiction, over all of these things that beset us in this world. It, it says, Easter says to us that God has the last word, that hope has the last word. So if you're in that place of bondage, if you're in that place of heartache, if you're in that place of, of struggle, of not knowing where to turn, or of just a general numbness in your life, then let Easter speak into your life the reality and the truth and the hope that God has the final word, that life prevails over death. There is no victory for death. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? That is the greatest enemy that we fight, that we face, and that we experience in this world as we know it. And it has no sting anymore. God will have the last word. God will have the last word. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this work that God is doing? This radical work of resurrection. This radical work of bringing life where there was once death. This work that doesn't fit into our normal parameters of what we experience day in and day out. We see a world where death has the final word. Our friends, our family, sometimes our children die. And that's the world in which we live. What are we to do in response to this resurrecting God? Well, one response has been there from the beginning. And it's the response that says disbelief, mockery, rejection, mutation into something other than what the resurrecting life of God is. It says, you know what? This is just far too much for me to believe. This is far too big, far too crazy. Dead people don't rise from the, from the grave. And that's the response that we see in Peter at the very beginning when they hear the women come back and tell them this tale. It's the response that we see from the famous one, who? Thomas, in the end of, of, of John's Gospel, that I won't believe this. It's the response of the Athenians in Acts 17, when they hear Paul speak of resurrection, they begin to mock him. Dead people don't rise. It's the response 
of this Newsweek columnist, Lisa Miller, who wrote a book called Far From Heaven. She says, for my part, she's talking about resurrection and just how radical it is. I don't buy it. For my part, I don't buy it. I do, however, leave the door open for a crack for radical acts of grace and kindness and for humbling ourselves before all that we don't understand. That's a much safer route to travel. I don't buy this resurrection thing, but you know, sometimes God can do some cool stuff, sometimes, and so can people. And that's one response that we can give to this life-giving infiltration of God into this present world. We can respond with disbelief. And that response, in essence, says, I'm going to do life on my terms. I'm going to pursue life, which we all long for, in my own way, by my own strength. And I'm going to hold this world tightly. Then there is the other response. There's that response of awe, of literal fear, of astonishment, of marveling that we read about in Peter in verse 11 of Luke 24. Of, I, God, don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand how you work. I don't understand how Jesus could have been raised from the dead. But in 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 submission, ultimately, to you and to your power. I fall at your feet and I say, let God be God. Thomas gives us the primary response after seeing Jesus. He says what? My Lord and my God. Obedience and worship. My Lord, to whom I submit my life, not just give a tip of the hat to once in a while, not just kind of say a cute thing about every once in a while, not just kind of come up to you every time I end up in a desperate place, but my Lord, the one to whom I bow my entire life and I lay it at your feet in awe and astonishment of who you are and of what you've done. And my God, the one whom I worship, the one to whom I raise my voice, And I lift my head in adoration and in praise. Not keeping at an arm's length. Not going my own way. But choosing to embrace life on his terms. Life out of my death. Life out of my poverty. Life out of my inability. A life that cannot be planned for or organized or anticipated a life of daily dependence and adoration before the resurrected Jesus, the living King, the true and only King, who's come to rescue us, whom death could not hold, and who longs to bring you and me, each one of us, life, the life that we all long for. This is who we worship today. This is who we say hallelujah He is risen about. It's this God, this Lord. Amen.